look at what the gap is in our society at the moment. And I think the gap that we're struggling with is that we're trying to take many young men from, from childhood to a kind of modernist or even postmodernist adulthood directly through their education. And there's at least two major stages of being that are missing. One would be the mythic stage, which you're getting some off of Star Wars. And the other would be like a more fundamental heroic stage. If you accept this kind of idea of developmental models, um, if you skip someone past the stage of their development, they, they can't recover from that easily. So I, I think it is part of this uh, this being stuck in a, a modernist scientific material model, trying to push people into that. Uh, and they're going back to, to sci-fi and fantasy. I think fundamentally to pick up this heroic part of ourselves. Um, but then my question is, is this, is this real? Are the Avengers movies actually giving people what they need in that process? Uh, is it bleeding over from watching a fantasy into actual emotional, cognitive development as well? Mm. And that's, I'm very mixed in the answer mm. to that. So when I'm critical of something like Star Wars, the, the criticism is fundamentally, you know, is this, is this fake myth, basically, or is it actually helping us make the growth that we need to? Welcome, friends, both old and new, to another episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning-making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. We are in part three of A Quest for Meaning as a Spiritual Species, and in this series, I'm talking to experts in various disciplines who are rejecting one of the dominant guiding stories of our culture, a story that tells us that the world is pure chance, random, chaotic, and devoid of any objective meaning. And while some of these guests may or may not have levels of agreement with my Christian convictions, they all share in the conviction that humans are fundamentally a spiritual species on a quest for meaning. My guest today is an expert in storytelling and modern myth-making. He's written for the BBC, Wired, The Guardian, Independent, and a host of other publications. His podcast, Science Fiction with Damian Walter, has been in the top of Apple podcast charts in the UK, and he leads an online community of over 18,000 members interested in science fiction, fantasy, modern myth, and writing. His name is Damian Walter, and I'm delighted to have him join me as a new guest to the program today. Though we come from different backgrounds and perspectives, I'm a major admirer of the quality of Damien's work and his provocative thinking. This conversation was a blast. This interview is being split up into two parts, so you'll want to tune in again next week to listen to the second segment. This podcast, my writing on Substack and video content on YouTube is made possible without advertisement because of generous listeners just like you over on Patreon. To continue my work in 2023, we need to hit a Patreon goal of 200 patrons by March. So if you found my work valuable and you appreciate that I am not colonizing your valuable attention with advertisements, please consider supporting and get access to a bunch of bonus video content, Q&A episodes, and live discussions with me and other patrons on Zoom, and so much more. Click the link in the description to find out more. 
Well, with that, I hope you enjoy this fascinating dialogue with Damian Walter. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Deep Talks. I am so excited to be joined by a new guest today, someone I've been following, I think, for a couple of years now. I think my first exposure to our guest today might have been on an interview perhaps on Rebel Wisdom, maybe. I saw a talk Damian Walters gave, he was talking about myth and story. And uh, as you guys that have been listening for several years know, that, that stuff's right up my alley. I'm quite curious about the way stories function, especially the highest guiding stories of a culture, how they function in a religious religious way. And so um, Damien's got a bunch of fascinating work that he's doing. I'm going to let him tell you about all the stuff. Damien, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the program. Uh, would you tell our audi- my audience here that might not be familiar with your work a little bit about what you do? Um, give us a little bit of your own personal history and your interests in maybe the on-ramps that got you into the subject matters that you explore. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on Deep Talks, Paul. I've been one of your regular uh, audience members for about the same length of time now. Uh, I think I found you I was as I was finding like the sense-making community and this space that like John Viveki seems pretty central to. I know you've interviewed him a couple of times here. Yeah, I love John. Uh, yeah, so and it's a fascinating space with um, this kind of post-New Atheist thing that rebel wisdom was very driven by the rediscovery of wisdom in religions and it seems like story is at the middle of that and maybe it's like the unanswered question um i've noticed in quite a few of the 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 interviews and discussions in this space people kind of arriving at their own definitions of story uh or not doing so i think there was a good discussion with Peterson and Pajo and Viveki, where they kind of went into a three-way argument about what what story was. So I find that fascinating because that's been uh, the central part of my work for the last the last decade or so, or a bit more. Um, I guess I go in reverse order. Actually, right now I'm a YouTuber uh, because my uh, my kind of teaching and research work is over in the space of storytelling and lots in sci-fi and fantasy as well. So I found I was crossing over into this very rich YouTube space where there's a lot of uh, critics talking about film and also sci-fi and fantasy storytelling. Uh, So I was putting my science fiction podcast on YouTube and then uh, realized that I wanted to do that more. So I focused like the last few months specifically on YouTube which is quite unexpected. I didn't expect to become a YouTuber at, at like 45, actually. <laughs> but TikTok next, I think. Yeah, yeah, there you uh, go. No, I'm not going to do TikTok. That's but what led me there is uh, researching story, basically. So I was um, living and working for a long time in the city of Leicester, uh, the United, uh, United Kingdom, where... Um, I was doing like uh, essentially social work with arts. I was I was trying to be a writer, so I was kind of building up a writing uh, practice, uh, doing writing for like major newspapers in the UK, criticism, and also running like these arts projects where I was working with a lot of very excluded groups. And I started to see that there was something important about these things connected. Like a lot of the people I was working with who were 
often mental health service patients or uh, people in old people's homes or, or school kids. Everyone seemed to have a story. Uh, and some people had a good story and other people had like a broken story. And I found that very interesting. So I went back to university to, to study story and to teach creative writing as well. Uh, and over about 10 years, I, I researched and read as much as I could. And that ultimately turned into my first course. Because I think today, more and more, we do courses instead of books. Like that's of a Vakey thing yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, the video course. So this was, my first course was Rhetoric of Story. It brings together all of my research on storytelling. And it's basically my answer to the question, what is story? Uh, and that's been very successful. That has over 40,000 students online now, wow. which I'm very grateful for. It gives me quite a lot of freedom in, in what I'm doing. Uh, and then I kind of came back to uh, a more specific interest in sci-fi and fantasy when I had this, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a mic drop moment, uh, uh, a moment of inspiration, epiphany, yeah, yeah. of science fiction and fantasy which i'd always been fascinated by uh i that's what i did all my writing about in the uk for places like the guardian and the bbc um and i had this epiphany that sci-fi and fantasy are our modern myth making like i really felt it so my my second major course is writing the 21st century myth which is for sci-fi and fantasy storytellers but also people just interested in the field, exploring how all of our great stories, Star Wars to Star Trek, Interstellar, uh, Dune, these are our yeah. modern myths and the different ways into that. And when I started doing that, I was, it was recovering a lot of knowledge that I'd known a lot about like five years earlier and reminding myself what myth was. So the course kind of grows and expands as I get into it. And I find some of the, the deeper themes in there as well, uh, which well, is why gifted, I've enjoyed. You're a gifted teacher, Damien. I have to say that, oh, you know, you. As, as someone that spent 12 years in, in a traditional classroom setting, um, you know, I wish your stuff would have been around, you know, for my students <laughs> 12, you know, years ago when I was in the classroom, because I developed, I had developed this course. Um, I forget what I called it at the time. And I, I, you know, can't believe they just let me do this, which was essentially I told the administrators here, you know, here's an idea for a course. It'd be part like theology, you know, part like biblical studies. We'll work that in because it was a Christian school. And um, here's what I want to do. I want to help. I want to have the students watch movies and then they're mm -hmm. going to they're going to assess where they see theology and philosophy embedded in these movies. And um, at the time, there wasn't a lot of YouTube stuff. But your stuff, when I watch it, I go, if I would have had Damien, I would have just, I would have sat back at my desk and just pressed play on your YouTube channel <laughs> every day. So it's phenomenal. Sorry, I cut you off Thank there, you. but uh, it, I'm sorry, keep going there. Uh, well, I was just saying that it's why I've enjoyed watching so many of your videos. Uh, and I caught up with your Spider-Man as, as mm. Christian Mythos uh, yesterday. And I actually haven't seen No Way Home yet. So uh, now I'm going to go and watch it. Uh, and and double check your your thesis there. The thing with the the teaching, I think, is that um, I always ran into when I was working in institutions what the institutional conception 
of anything around storytelling or especially like sci-fi and fantasy was um so in higher education it would be like their creative writing course was a kind of money-making course for for i, I don't want to use the term but like wealthy housewives or something and yeah. that's how they saw it and the idea that there was kind of serious content over there or when i was writing for the guardian it was always difficult with the editors that they had an idea of what sci-fi was and i wanted to do the kind of stuff i'm doing now on my youtube so there's something in here about getting out of these institutional frameworks for new knowledge can you touch and about i feel like yeah can you speak for a moment about those differences i'm curious about that for something like when you're yeah. writing for the guardian when you sensed you know you are you you're writing and exploring these films and, and feel free to correct me if you're uncomfortable mm. with this this word damien um but to me, you're you're assessing them on like a religious level, as mm. as the yeah. highest guiding stories of a culture. See that 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 for me, when I talk about religion, as you know from listening to my stuff, I'm I'm talking about the stories of ultimate concern. To take the language of Paul Tillich, which when we talk mm. about God, we're speaking of that which is of ultimate concern to us. Mm. And I'm really curious as to why you know uh, newspapers and institutions why you brushed up against resistance for exploring mm. them at that level. And maybe what were, what were they looking for from you instead? When you talk about how they saw sci-fi in a different way, maybe doing something differently in culture. Mm. Can you give a little more insight into what was going on there? Yeah, I think there's two levels to that, although they're very connected. One is, um, you know, if I'm writing for, I wrote for like 20 to 30 different, top level publications over the years um and they would see me as embedded in their entertainment coverage uh, yes so yes. there's a there's a whole framework for what that means um in some cases not places like the guardian or bbc but many others that's embedded with their ad revenue as well because films and stuff are a big spend so they have a certain idea of what they want to do but really that idea of entertainment is also it's just an outgrowth of the the deeper second layer, which is that in a country like the UK, especially at the point I was growing up in it and then coming into my early professional career, I've described it before as the most secular time and place in human history. Um, you do have the Church of England there, but it's essentially uh, the Church of England. Uh, I, I don't want to offend my C of E friends, but it's like state organized atheism in a way so the the country is completely distanced from from any kind of religious practice and i certainly was i'd have described myself as a a new atheist type probably around that time uh, uh i'd read lots of richard dawkins the selfish gene that kind of thing and that gave me a lot of my framework uh, so there's also just a very deep cultural bias which meant that when people came to look at mythic storytelling in its popular form, which something like Star Wars definitely is, but there's also deeper examples. Um, they don't have any framework to assess it. So my editors would often be like, this can only be for children. We only want to talk about this for children. So if I'm pitching an idea about the political meanings in something, which is now more common, but when I was doing it 20 years ago, this just wasn't talked about in mainstream media at all. And I started to understand that as a very... Uh, a, a blind cultural bias that nobody in my 
my cultural framework could see. And I, I still wouldn't describe myself as religious because I, I come from a particular cultural background and it's very difficult to escape. But I spend a lot of time exploring religion. But I think for me is I understand everything as a mythos. Basically, that's my my frame of thinking uh, now. So, and I'm looking for these different connections between them. I, ho I hope that answers the question for you. Definitely, Peter. definitely. And I, I see you and any label I might attempt to place on you, Damien, feel free to correct me. You, uh, it doesn't seem like you are um, have any trouble with being disagreeable. So I'm sure you will correct <laughs> me if, okay. if I do. But I, I see you kind of occupying in this space that I, um, it's interesting that you talked about as part of your story being kind of wrapped up in the new atheist movement, because I see us moving in the West into a new epoch, a new phase, post-secular, you know, so we've mm. moved through Charles Taylor's secular age. We've moved through the, you know, the, the, the height of new atheism, that post-September 11th climate, where it was like, you know, all religion is bad because, you know, Saudi mm. terrorists did this. Um, into these spaces where, again, like Rebel Wisdom is a good example of this. Verveke obviously is hosting these sorts of conversations and Peugeot and, and other people like that, Peterson. Um, you know, there's there's probably better examples that are escaping me right now. But it's interesting because I see in your work something of what I've maybe called like the post-secular and this mm -hmm. new shift in attitudes towards religion in general, seeing it as um, an inescapable part of the human experience. Mm. You know, so there was the sort of secular myth from Dawkins that you're probably well familiar with, you know, that once we eliminate, you know, all superstition, once we eliminate everyone worshiping their separate sky gods, and we get down to pure rationality, we'll be able to move into this utopian age, you know, I frequently talk about how like John Lennon's imagine is kind of like the hymn of secularism, right? It's like the secular nice. hymn. Yeah. And it's very utopian, you know, imagine mm. there's no religion and then we'll get to this, but it seems like among people, even yourself, Damien, who don't con tr uh, consider yourself traditionally religious, that mm. there's, um, there seems to be this recognition that on some level humans seem inescapably attached to pursuing the religious to pursuing mythos mm. in that that sense of the word um i'd be curious like what what maybe brought you out of that sort of new atheist mindset and into like mm. i'm really fascinated by exploring the ancient mythos and new religion and the, the religions of the past and um seeing the the quest for religion in these stories as something not to be dismissed as like, well, this is just for children, you know, or it's a crutch mm -hmm. for the weak minded, but it, there might actually be something there, even if you're not comfortable saying what that something is. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I, I, where to start with that? I think the basic issue is one of, of suffering basically uh, in the, in people's individual experience that, uh, uh, let's just label it the new atheist period. It doesn't have anything to, to give anybody on the question of suffering, uh, especially the kind of personal emotional suffering that people are dealing with uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and you can observe 
sometimes I've got into quite serious arguments about this, that, that people like Dawkins or maybe a Sam Harris figure, they're people who've had quite good fortune in their lives. There's a lot of stuff serving their ego. Uh, and if that stuff isn't there, uh, some level of personal success, which, which that level of society is very well attuned for, you're going to need something else. And ultimately, people will go looking for it somewhere. And one of the main places in my experience that when I was working with like young men in Leicester who had serious different kinds of mental health problems, they were all into sci-fi and fantasy, uh, as was I. That was somewhere I could bridge into working with them because they were drawing a lot of meaning from it. So when a decade later I started to really understand the the religious echoes in these stories, that made made total sense to me. So they were a way into the into the mythos there uh for me beyond that kind of kind of searching for a, some some relief from from personal suffering uh i found developmental models so switching into a much more kind of legoic idea uh through initially through ken wilbur uh, and I was exploring Buddhist ideas at the same time. So I, I don't know if you know Ken Wilbur. Well, I mean, not personally, well but I'm familiar with him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, he's just one advocate, really, of developmental models. So the idea that someone like Dawkins is putting forward that we can just take religion and get rid of it, in a, in a developmental sense, it would be like saying uh, we can get past needing our liver. Uh you know, you may yeah. not think a lot about your your liver anymore, but you still need it moment to moment. And we have something like this with with religion as well, that so much of what we are is grown out of it. Uh, and so we still need it, but perhaps in some kind of adapted form, I think there would be a, a, a debate to, to have mm -hmm. about that. So that was really the the insight me that the religion isn't going anywhere it will just reawaken in different forms as we've been saying since Nietzsche you know so I kind of accept the arguments that a lot of uh, a lot of our ideological structures something like communism for instance has very religious overtones to it uh, so then the question which I, I haven't actually explored very deeply is what then is the best religious structure is Star Wars better than the Old Testament myths. Mm. Uh, I think that's a very interesting... Mm. I want to talk about that in a little bit. But, but yeah. first, I do want to talk about, because it's it's connected to what I see as part of what you've described in your own journey of kind of being dissatisfied with, you know, the, the, the simple reductive physicalism of the new atheist to mm. maybe exploring the possibilities of transcendence. When I was perusing your website at the very top of the website i saw this and i was like oh i've got to ask damien about what he means by this the universe is made up of stories not atoms now when i read that i immediately went to what would neil degrasse tyson do <laughs> with this statement on twitter well but actually damien you know i sure. um tell me what you mean by that uh, well, I should attribute that. It's from the poet Muriel Rakaiser. Uh, and uh, I recommend you can Google that that line for anyone who wants to and read the full poem. And she's an American feminist poet. And one way of looking at that is that 
in my general experience, it's something that women tend to agree with much more quickly than men. Uh, because it, in the way that she's using it in that poem, it's a statement about our social existence and how that is really our universe. Uh, and because it's, it's experience. Uh, and she's trying to bring people back to the experiential to in a Viveki sense, rather than the, uh, uh, rather than our propositional propositional, yeah. knowing all the time. Yeah. Uh, which is what we do when we, we talk about atoms that they're an incredible abstraction that we can occupy in our kind of noetic space of thinking. Um, but nonetheless, atoms solve a lot of problems for us. And that's, you know, in the different definitions we can have of truth. If we go with truth as something that solves a problem, basically, uh, atoms solve a lot of problems for us. A, a, a whole range of you know, launching rockets to the moon, building computers, that kind of thing. Uh, but when I was, again, working in, in Leicester, a very formative time for me, uh, lots of the people I was working with in the mental health community were um, using uh, different forms of uh, prescribed medications, antidepressants, antipsychotics in some very serious cases. Uh, and these were doing nothing for people's mental health. In, in many cases, they were damaging people far worse. And that was trying to take this model of atoms and apply it to, to humans, which I just, the further you move into the human realm, the less the, the answer for, that comes from atoms works at all. Uh, but the answer that does seem to work is stories, uh, that when we start dealing with people, we're basically talking about people's stories, people's shared stories, our cultural narratives. And once you understand those, I don't think it's coincidental at all that when like the early psychoanalytic figures, like Freud and Young, were, were looking at these mental health problems, they were very quickly ending up at folktales and myth and, right. and so on as a source to inform their, their work. Mm. So that's what, what I see in that line, that when we look at the human universe, which I think actually is the real universe uh, in the most fundamental sense, it's a universe of stories. Uh, I don't want to get rid of the atoms. I quite like having a computer. No. But yeah. even the atom is a story. So to give it yeah, that descriptive term, to tell, to talk yeah. about the universe in that way, to use the language yeah. of physics, you know, physics is already, you know, you hear physicists sometimes speak, and I love the discipline of physics, but mm. sometimes they speak, and I joke about a Neil deGrasse Tyson, because they, they often speak as if um, they have the, the, the they're the sole, um, uh, they have the sole perspective on objective reality. But mm -hmm. yet, they're embedded in language, and language is embedded mm -hmm. in culture, and culture is yeah. shaped around stories. And so when we talk about things like atoms, yeah. we're already talking about it in story. And that, that's, that to me, I didn't know that that quote was, um, was from actually a, from a poet. Um, it yeah. didn't come from, come from you. But I, I find it as a fascinating statement um, that I think more and more people are starting to realize and this was mm. part to me of the myth of our secular age was that we had, we could come up with spaces that were neutral, like n narratively neutral spaces. 
You know, mm. like this is devoid of any claims about reality or what, what should guide us or what the good life is like. And I think more and more people are starting to see that that you you can't actually have a vacuum of story. You know, mm. we are storied creatures. You, you you learn about this on a existential level as you interact with people as a social worker. You know, my day mm. job as a pastor. You know, I, I'm regularly hearing people's stories. Um, yeah, and that is like that is their story narrative is seems to be the way that meaning making is encoded into us and it does mm -hmm. seem to be unique to us as a species mm. i find it it just it's so fascinating to me that the way um when we tell our you know we were talking before we hit record about i was talking about my children and when i uh when i want to communicate to my children and say hey this is what i think the vision of a good life looks like, or they have questions about meaning, purpose, and significance. Mm -hmm. I've never gotten out for them like an Excel spreadsheet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm certain there are parents who have done that, <laughs> who are very embedded in the um, uh, in the scientific stage, mm. the, the scientific material stage, and something you see in developmental models like in child development like right. when you become a teenager you you reject everything about being 10 well, we're going ten through that now look, <laughs> yeah 10 year olds look exactly look stupid and silly to yeah. you and this is uh, i i do apply this developmental model quite often and the the scientific materialist model is is still in this 500 years later it's still in this stage of radically rejecting the the religious the mythic model that came before it um but there's more and more people stepping beyond that that divide well, i think even just they're seeing that a materialist narrative is still a narrative hmm. it's not it's yeah. not objective it's it, it, you know we can get to truths that we can corroborate in physics so i'm not denying that but i'm mm -hmm. saying the language and then how we take the data and then derive oughts from the data, yeah. you know, yeah. how we ought to live. Now we're moving into story and narrative and ethic mm -hmm. and philosophy. And so um, I'm, I'm just, I, I think you're spot on on what you were saying about in these sorts of spaces, sense-making, meaning-making communities, that there's this kind of awakening to the power of narrative and the mm -hmm. way that stories transmit values on this implicit level of connection, way more so than just rhetoric, simple rhetoric, or just mm. staring at like data on a spreadsheet. There's something mm. about narrative that it seems to um, it seems to be unique to us as a species. I don't know. We, you know, we can't interview do the dolphins and the the apes and figure out if they tell sure. stories. We haven't figured that out yet. But it does seem to be be something unique to us um I, you know why why for you damien um why do you see like sci-fi and fantasy in particular you talked about young men that you were connecting mm. with who are maybe experiencing doses of apathy or maybe utter nihilism mm. as it seemed like the the narrative structure of the secular age maybe didn't have enough um 
enough to buttress up a sense of meaning and purpose and significance for so many young men's lives in particular. Yeah. They see themselves as just a cog in the machine or, you know, the, 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 there's just nothing more than random chaos that we just, we have to be like Sisyphus and just kind of keep pushing our rock up the mountain and then tell ourselves, well, this is a good time. Why do you think men in particular mm. who might be struggling with that also seem deeply attracted to science fiction stories, to fantasy stories. Mm -hmm. Why do they fill the, the theaters whenever a new Marvel movie comes out or a DC comics movie comes out? What for you do you see unique about that, those particular genres and how it helps people do meaning making? Yeah. Um, so something that, that interested me and when I interviewed John Viveki, we, we were talking specifically uh, about this because I emailed him completely cold and said, basically, is, is Star Wars a real mythos or is it like a Big Mac? Is it like a fake, uh, a fake myth? Mm. Because if you look at like the, what we know about George Lucas's creation of it and drawing on Joseph Campbell, and uh, I mean, that will be new to some people, but it's, it's, it's quite known to most people that it's like, um, it's like Lucas discovered this, this pattern for storytelling, which he took from Joe Campbell. Um, and when he put that into a story and he took this kind of space opera symbolic framework, which was still relatively new at the, the time, and there hadn't been much done with it seriously for storytelling. It was all very pulp storytelling in film anyway. Uh, and then he puts this kind of synthetic meaning framework into it and it just explodes so that's the hero's journey the monomyth uh and i think that's that's why that works and then that gets picked up and used a bazillion times by hollywood and other storytelling industries uh, because it does something that appeals to people and it seems to appeal particularly to boys and then young men and then middle-aged men who are still kind of holding on to it particularly and the the number of of girlfriends i've alienated by making them watching <laughs> hero's journey movies like david lynch's june movie which i was obsessed with and the girl would be like i i see no appeal here what is this about so i'm, I'm just going to say there's something more specifically male in there um and then look at what the gap is in our society at the moment. And I think the gap that we're struggling with is that we're trying to take many young men from, from childhood to a kind of modernist or even postmodernist adulthood directly through their education. And there's at least two major stages of being that are missing. One would be the mythic stage, which you're getting some off of Star Wars. And the other would be like a more fundamental heroic stage uh mm -hmm. and if you take if you accept this kind of idea of developmental models um if you skip someone past the stage of their development they, they can't recover from that easily um and one thing that i see if someone like um rafe kelly for instance mm -hmm. uh is you know a lot of what he's doing in his kind of physical work is recovering some of that heroic aspect Mm, uh, uh, yes. your your embodiment in your body your body your ability to use it and then you look at the 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 stereotypical 
kind of male nerd who is into Star Wars, and they're completely alienated, perhaps, from that part of themselves. Uh, so I, I think it is part of this uh, this being stuck in a, a modernist scientific material model, trying to push people into that. Uh, and they're going back to, to sci-fi and fantasy, I think fundamentally to pick up this heroic part of ourselves. You know, I went through this, so I can't, I'm not just putting it all on, on other men. Um, but then my question is, is this, is this real? Are the Avengers movies actually giving people what they need in that process? Uh, is it bleeding over from watching a fantasy into actual emotional cognitive development as well mm. and that's i'm very mixed in the answer mm. to that so when i'm critical of something like star wars the the criticism is fundamentally you know is this is this fake myth basically or is it actually helping us make the growth that we need to i don't know what you feel about that or i don't know what your answer to that would be I got I broke up there in that last part of what you were saying, yeah. so I didn't get to hear the question, Damien. I lost you for a second. Uh, I don't know what your answer to that is w when you're thinking about like Spider-Man as a, a Christian mythos. Mm. Do you see it as as effectively helping people, or is it kind of using those ideas to mm. to make itself popular as a a synthetic kind of myth? That's a good question. So I. You know, my um, maybe my heuristic lens is slightly different because I, I'm approaching this more mm. as a, a theologian of culture, which is yeah. kind of a newer niche discipline in theology, where theologians are looking at cultural texts. So that mm -hmm. can be art, music, film, the modes mm. of cultural communication, and going where in these cultural texts do we see evidence, let's say, in the Christian tradition of the disclosure of truth, goodness, and beauty, you know, that's in mm -hmm. harmony with the Christian story. Yeah. So, you know, let's take Paul Tillich again. And I, I mentioned him several times. I'm not like a huge Tillich fan. I don't know why he comes up all the time. <laughs> Maybe I am subconsciously. <laughs> you know, but Tillich, Tillich talked about that there was, a, there was a latent church embedded in culture outside of the church. So you mm. can actually see, um, I'm not asking you to agree with me on this, Damien, but from my vantage point, you can see the, the working of God happening in culture as people are earnestly on their quest to meaning making, searching for the truth, you know, mm -hmm. and as they search for the truth, you're going to see elements of the true and the good and the beautiful embedded in these stories. So mm. it takes something like a, a Spider-Man more, most recent Spider-Man story. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, that, that movie, it broke away from the, and that was the primary emphasis of that movie. Now I'm, it's not high art. I mean, it's not even on the level of, you know, Dune, you know, it's still, sure. you know, the typical Marvel formula. So, mm -hmm. uh, but even as that goes, you have to recognize that people are filling the theaters for a reason. And the reason mm -hmm. is to me, it's not just entertainment. It's not what some mm -hmm. of those, um, you know, newspapers that you were working for were trying to say, this is all that this is. It's not just entertainment, mm -hmm. even though it might be kind of like low brow in some sense, people are going here because they see this as a place to find meaning. 
And to me, that's really fascinating. So I can look at a story like this recent Spider-Man movie, uh, No Way Home, I think that's what it was called. Yeah. And they subverted something in the usual hero stories, which you have the hero and you have the villain. And the way the villain is traditionally defeated is through some force from of power that good is stronger than evil, which there's a lot of good to be said in that story that good is stronger mm. than evil and good will eventually overcome evil. And we all want that to be true. We want that to be true in our instances of suffering, right? We mm. want when we're experiencing the pain of life to go in the end, this will not get the final word, right? This would be from my Christian vantage point, like the resurrection hope, you know, on a mythological level that in the end, death doesn't get the final word. And we all deeply hope that that's true. So, there's there's some good to it, like evil being defeated by good that is more powerful than that. But this was very strange in that in this movie, the Spider-Men, which is no spoiler at this point, we've got multiverse action happening, right? And there's the Spider-Men from the, the different big screen iterations. They all have their villains that they've in those previous big screen iterations have defeated through force and violence. Mm -hmm. But the newest Spider-Man sees something different that there is actually, in some sense, these people are not in and of themselves evil. But I would almost say that Spider-Man in this movie acts as an exorcist. He sees mm. the villains possessed, in a sense, by demons. And once those demons are expelled from these people, they'll be set to the right mind. So you've got this story in the Gospels of Jesus and the demoniac, the Gadarean demoniac. And the Gadarean demoniac has been set aside from his community because uh, his demonic possession has, has caused much uh, harm in the community. And according to at least one version of the story, he's so strong that he can break chains, you know? So there's like a super villain quality to this. And Jesus encounters the demoniac and his disciples are frightened by them. And instead of looking at this man as subhuman, he sees the image of God still in the, the demon possessed person. And he speaks to the demons. This is the story of the demons that speak out and they say, we're legion. Right. And he yeah. cast the demons out. And this is, of course, the famous instance where Jesus casts demons into swine and they run off the cliff. And everybody's like, what's that all about? And no, no theologian really knows what that's about. But it's to me, I'm watching this movie and I'm seeing this hero going, no, what I'm actually after is like the redemption of even the villain. And mm -hmm. I go, why does that resonate? Why would people walk out of a theater and go, man, that might actually be a higher vision. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe, and I think it's going to make it really difficult for future iterations of Marvel movies. People come out of that. And it's going to make it really difficult when you step into another Marvel movie and the solution is, well, we just punch the bad guy much harder than he punches us. Because now you've seen an alternative vision for the world in which you go, can even enemies be redeemed? And hmm. that to me is a story that resonates with us, not because it's in and of itself a unique story, but to me, it's a, um, I don't, I don't want to use a pejorative label. Like it's, um, 
like a symbiotic story. That makes it sound pejorative, mm. but we'll, we'll stick in the, the Spider-Man universe, which has the symbiote venom, and we'll say symbiotic. It's a symbiotic story in that it's not deriving, it's, um, it's not unique. It's coming from something, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this because I find myself situated in the Christian tradition, but there, there's plenty of that, uh, that stuff where I think what happens is like the really, really good stories. And this is what I, I sometimes see you talking about, Damien, is like, what is it about these stories that the ones that really resonate with us, are they saying something new or are they actually saying something really, really old? That's always mm. true, but we need it recontextualized to our cultural mm. framework. Mm. What do you think about any of that? Uh, it's making me think about the, the struggle of the myth makers that I think the myth maker has always had through, through history. So if you look at where we are today, um, there's been this new Star Wars television show, Andor, and it's yeah. it's it's the creation of, of Tony Gilroy, it seems. Um, and I am I imagine just thinking about the mechanisms of Hollywood that there was this one little window where he could get that made because the Disney Corporation were like, "What the hell is going on? Everyone's screaming at us on YouTube." Uh, and we got this guy who has this idea. Okay, we'll we'll go with it. So he gets a chance to do something genuinely. Uh, I call it mythopathic. This combination of the mythic uh, and the very human storytelling as well. It's really powerful. And then I think back. I don't know if you've heard of the the Book of Jay. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of of it's a. Uh, a piece of literary criticism. It's edited by Harold Bloom, but I forget the name of the actual author now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and it's basically making the argument that the J author of the Old Testament text was probably a woman, hmm. uh, maybe something like a Babylonian princess uh, writing like 2000 BC. Uh, it's been a long time since I, I read the book of J. And that, when I read that, that really resonated with me, not for evidential reasons, just for thinking about the challenges of storytellers mm -hmm. and what it would be like to, to be a myth maker in like a very pre-modern society, uh, an agrarian city state. Um, and what kind of person might have created the seeds of these stories? And then the challenges, like what does the king of the state say about these stories? What do the priest cast say about it? Uh, what's the public response to them mm. and they get manipulated and changed and monetized by all kinds of different people over hundreds and, and thousands of years uh later and i think whenever something good comes out it's because some myth maker had struggled to to make it happen mm. and it will still be distorted in places and the imperfections of the myth maker will come through as well because we're all human, but these figures get get possessed. Actually, I, I think when people are in the process of they have a vision of communicating something, it, they're not thinking about money anymore or, or personal power. They just want to get it into the world. And when that happens, we get amazing myths through through thousands of years of human history, and they're 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 always worth something to us. I think that's why in my critical work, I'm always trying to distinguish where is that value? What seems to be just a cynical attempt to, 
to imitate that and what looks like the real work of a myth maker at the moment. And that does seem like it is somewhat, um, it depends on your own convictional location as to how you interpret that medium of art. Right. So we'll stick with the mm. star Wars mythos. Um, and they've become, you know, post, well, even go back to the prequels Any, you know, pretty much anything outside of the original trilogy and maybe among the hardcore nerds, the sort of dark empire, you know, saga after sure. that, the stuff has become really divisive. And you mm. take something like The Last Jedi. Mm. Critics, Good example. critics look at that and they go, this is a story that only can compare to Empire Strikes Back and what it's doing and subverting mm. all of these things in the narrative. I came out of the theater really upset. And not mm -hmm. for the reasons, you know, there's a lot of, and maybe we should talk about this too, but there's a lot of culture war stuff bound up in this. Um, so how does something actually works its way up from the muse, if you will, that has this moment of like clairvoyance into maybe seeing the world as it is in a way that the culture isn't quite ready to see and it makes its way in. And then all of a sudden the culture is like able to see it. I was just thinking about this today with like Socrates, like Homer, the Homeric religion, those stories are incredible. And mm -hmm. what was the accusation against Socrates was that he was leading the youth of Athens away from trusting in those stories anymore. Yeah. But how in the world, cause those are powerful stories. Mm. How was it that Socrates had a vision that still emerged out of that, they kill him. Yeah. And I would say Socrates wins in the end, even over those, yeah. those stories. So take the last Jedi again. It seems like, and I forget how many years away we are from that. It seems like that story isn't going to emerge out of this process as being something retained as like, well, this mm. is, this is this is a guiding story. I, I could mm -hmm. be wrong about that, but I, it seems like as these cultural dialogues are happening from different vantage points, some people look at it going, "Yes, we needed to deconstruct Luke. You know, we needed to have someone. <laughs> you know, that machismo sure. Poe Dameron. He needed to be put in his yeah. place by a strong female leader." And others going, "Well, no, this is just." It doesn't seem like it's going to merge victorious, but then mm. you see something like Andor and there's something about mm. Andor that resonates and you've talked about it in your, your video. I, th I think mm. you've, you've touched on some, some salient points right now, as we're having this conversation, my, my daughter, my 12 year old daughter is downstairs watching star Wars rebels. She's going through mm -hmm. that series. To me, that Rebels series is some of the best star Wars myth making now, it might be something that people look at and go, well, it's a little too childish or I, I'm not into animated, you know, um, stories, but there's something there that to me, it's like, oh, Dave Filoni gets Lucas's vision of the world. Mm. And I think that one might emerge victorious in the end over, over the, the, the Ryan Johnson vision of star mm -hmm. Wars, but that could just be my own personal opinion. And so how do we actually 
sift no, I think through. that's something very significant in yeah, talk about that specifically the Re the Rian Johnson uh, movie there. Um, trying to think of a a good way a good way into it. Well, this kind of culture war that we're in, um, and when when we're talking about why these things are clearly more than entertainment. So anyone who's saying this is just entertainment and then looking at these two groups who are literally on on the borders of, of war. Rings of power war with each other. It's the same thing, movie. right? With with yeah. Lord of the Rings and that relationship. Yeah, exactly. And um I see it as uh there's a moment from uh, uh The Last of the Mohicans. You remember that movie with Daniel Day-Lewis? Uh, and uh, for various reasons, he needs to walk into uh, the the enemy tribe. And he just has to walk in there on his own. And they're kind of whacking him over the head because he's completely invaded their territory. You don't do this. Uh, and what's happened with the Star Wars movies is a bit like that to me. Like the, the Star Wars movies feel like that mythos, rather, feels like the the possession of um, a, a very broad community of, of mostly men who, are, who see in it this recovery of their heroism. Let's just go with that as a simplified idea. Yeah. And then we have a very different cultural tier, which I'm also very familiar with, um, who really do want to take that story and change it, specifically as a kind of attack on that heroism. Uh, so I think that's all completely uh, true. And I think there's a, a very genuine cultural conflict there because we have these different stages of our culture that aren't able to respect each other. So that kind of deconstructionist, Rian Johnson remaking, deconstructing Star Wars phase, that's really the postmodern phase of our, of our civilization. And it has great value, but it's at war with both the modern phase and the, the, the earlier mythic phase as well. And it's a very genuine conflict, I think. And it, it's manifested in these arguments over our, our cultural mythos. So it would be better to let, to be more intelligent about what we do with something like Star Wars, basically. And we can't do that whilst we think about it as entertainment because that just flattens the field and says there's nothing to be intelligent about here. Um, and it would, be, it would be much better to, to not attack each other through our myths. And I say this to my, my postmodern friends, you know, you're very aggressively attacking other people and there will be a response. But I don't, I then, I don't then go to the point of saying there's therefore no value in no, that of course deconstruction. Not. Yeah. I think there's great value in there. Yeah. But this conflict has to be moderated between these groups as well. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Keep in mind, this is just the first segment of this conversation with Damian Walter. The entire um, video of this will be available to patrons on my Patreon page. I am uh, putting up a video for this as well because Damien's got a significant following over on YouTube as well. And I want to make sure that those that connect with his work are able to view that. But if you wanted to see the whole video for this, that will be available on my Patreon page. 
Keep in mind that part two, part two of actually part four of this series, but the second segment of this conversation is going to be released next week. So you'll want to tune in again next week. I'm releasing episodes on Tuesday mornings. So check it out next Tuesday. But in the meantime, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you learned points of agreement, points of disagreement, all of that stuff. And there's several different places you can do that. The first of which is we have a discussion forum. So I post this episode on my Patreon page and invite comments and feedback there. There's also the Discord server for our Deep Talks Patreon community. So if you get um, you get on Patreon and become a supporter at any support level, you can get access to that Discord server and uh, reach out to me or reach out to other listeners and um, have conversations about you know what what you were thinking, uh, you, the questions that came to mind, uh, the things that really resonated with you. All that stuff is great. Of course, there's always Twitter and Instagram. I'm fairly active on Twitter. That's more so than Instagram. So you can always reach out to me there as well. This podcast is again made possible because of the generous support of listeners just like you. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do it without each and every one of you. Um, I hope that each of you will be able to participate. Those of you that I just named off in the Theology 201 group and higher, you'd be able to participate in this upcoming Wednesday night's uh, live Q&A and discussion time happening on Zoom. Make sure you check out the details on my Patreon page. And I hope to see most of you there so we can have a, a good discussion. If you want to jump in on those, feel free to become a Theology 201 supporter over on Patreon. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to hearing your comments and your feedback. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.